What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole, good to have you back, man. Yeah, man. Back from vacation, feeling rejuvenated. Yeah? Yeah. You, uh, anniversary, vacation, all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah, we went to Gatlinburg and Did Asheville, you? hiked around some. Very nice. I'm, I'm not a big hiker, but Anna is, and she loves hiking. Gatlinburg is super fun. Yeah, it's fun. Did you guys go to, like, Pigeon Forge and all that stuff? Went Pigeon there? Forge, very touristy over there, yeah. but um, Smoky Mountain National as, Park. You can play as much mini golf right. as you could ever imagine. We did. We played two rounds in a row, and... Um, and it's good. Did you yeah. whoop your butt? Oh, yeah. She whooped me. Nice. Um, yeah, it was good. Smoky Mountains is very, very nice, though. Lots yeah. of good waterfalls and stuff. That's cool. Mm-hmm. How was that, uh, the, like, the touristy part? Was it pretty calm since they've been going on, or was... Uh, it was still pretty packed. It wasn't it was. like it would be probably at that same time, like last year. Mm-hmm. But, I mean... Masks everywhere? Masks everywhere, probably 80%. Yeah. 80%. What about, what about uh, hiking? What people wearing? No. Yeah. When no. we were in... Uh, Maybe like a couple of people, but no. When we were in Vermont, we had... Um, there it was the same kind of thing. Like once you got out of like the city, right. like you're hiking these trails, like there's no one out there. So like no, almost nobody had a mask on. If you pass somebody, you just kind of kept it. Now some and, of the trails, it was it was get annoying the whole time because you didn't want to come, you know, too right. close to people. So some of them were kind of narrow and there's people coming down. We're going up. So you kind of have to like slide against the wall and look away. <laughs> like don't look at me. I don't want to cough on you or something. Yeah. Most, and most everybody we came in contact with was pretty cool. But we yeah. definitely had some one person that was like, um, can you not get to <laughs> I was like yep sorry about that <laughs> yeah interesting uh, times yeah so um today we're going to kind of do a little bit of a repeat again um because we've talked about dyslipidemia before so we try to hit on this at least like once a year and I think the last one was 2019 and we did it because of the new update yeah. guidelines that came out in 2018 so and, and I feel like this is a topic that all of us are going to run into regardless of specialty and things like that. So I feel like it's something that, you know, we can touch on without being too repetitive. It's always a good refresher. So if you're like, oh, oh, why are they talking about this again? Sorry. Well, that's, that's one thing about medicine. It's always changing. And this happens to be one that there is always uh, developing data that can, you know, steer you to some better options or uh, maybe poo-poo on some other options. So we have at least a couple of new things. As they say. Yes. As they, as we say. (laughs) So we'll uh, we'll kind of go and review back over th- uh, the guidelines from 2018, and then we'll talk about some of the new data that's come out since then, and uh, just kind of touch on the different statin groups and one new drug. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So some of the new information. So hopefully it's useful. If not, and we'll try our next episode. <laughs> All right. What do you want to get started? Talk about some patho. Yeah, we can talk about some patho. Oh, before we even get started, one. Huge, I, I said this in the last podcast when you weren't here, but huge congrats on passing oh, yeah. the diabetes education Appreciate exam. It. That's awesome. So one down. Yeah. A few more letters after my name. BCPS coming right up. It'll come eventually. Um, yeah. Now that they changed the name of the diabetes exam, you get like two extra letters. Yeah, you do. It's like, CDCES. It's like five for the price of three. It took me months <laughs> to remember the combination of letters. <laughs> 
So yeah. that's good, man. Congrats. Yeah, appreciate it. And then uh, the other thing is, this is a topic that you recently got published for a continuing education well, course. Published, yeah, continuing education course. It's published. You know, it's, it's on a website that people. It's can on get somewhere. Credit. Yeah, <laughs> right. So it's one of free free CE uh, hired Cole to do a write a monograph about uh, dyslipidemia, and so it's on there. Yeah, it's literally my my wife was. To you in a CE the other day, and I'm like, oh, this is pretty interesting. I look, I was like, oh shoot, Cole wrote this. <laughs> so. Coleman Swanson, yeah, they use my full name. Spoiler alert, my name's Coleman. Coleman, yeah, it's way better. I'm only going to call you that now. Yeah, but um, yeah, so this is cool. So you're full on expert in this study. So mm, turn well, my microphone off and have we'll at it. Find out by the end. <laughs> That was a year ago. You know how much uh, information drops out of my brain in here? Oh my gosh. Mine mine drops out the second I hit stop on this recording device. Yes. <laughs> it's all, all downhill gone. from there. <laughs> Moving on to the next topic. It's cool. So let's start off with a little bit of patho. Yeah. Um, so one of the things is that I always bring up to like my students and whatnot is like, who cares if your cholesterol is high? Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about your LDL being elevated and, but, but what does that matter? And one of the things to kind of keep in mind is, you know, when your cholesterol is high, you know, in the short term, it's not necessarily like life threatening, especially if there's no plaque buildup or anything, but it's that long-term atherosclerotic plaque buildup that we're worried about happening. And, you know, when we, especially when you have patients that have comorbidities that also include like you know, inflammation in the body. So like things like just overall infection, patients that smoke, uh, patients that have uncontrolled hypertension or diabetes, all these things that can kind of wreak havoc on the body systemically. Mm-hmm. When you throw higher levels of your LDL uh, in the mix as well, that it just adds to, you know, the inflammation and whatnot, um, it can end up leading to those atherosclerotic plaques. Right. And that's where the trouble can start. It is. That's when we think about those macrovascular events. And my problem is I had trouble when I was learning about this, getting past the commercials that you see when they're talking about, um, any, really anytime they're talking about plaque buildup or the vascular system, you see a uh, top and bottom vessel wall, and then you see the small little cells or whatever floating through and then they just start to build up. And so that, that's what I was like, Oh, they're just sticking together. Oh my gosh, that could happen in like an hour and then you're dead. Right. But it's a little more complicated than that. It's so the silent killer, right? It's the silent killer. I think that's hypertension. I guess they're both silent. I think aneurysm also is in that mix. There's yeah. Little, anyway, I guess it's not, they sped so, up. So what's not silent? Hypertension. Mm. I mean, I mean, heart attack. Is that not silent? I feel like that's still pretty, pretty quiet, right? Right until it happens. So maybe not silent would maybe be like some angina kind of leading up to okay. it. Okay. So yeah, know. it's insidious. I got you. Okay, so we should probably not pontificate. I'm uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. where, where stay in our lane. Yeah, we'll come up with sayings later. Yeah. Uh, but it's a little more complicated than just cells floating by or, or little blobs of LDL floating by and all sticking together and then clogging your arteries. So um, why do we talk about LDL specifically? Uh, because when LDL is floating through um, and you have excess levels of LDL, it can become oxidized. It forms uh, what's called ox-LDL due to inflammation. So Mike talked about um, inflammation being a bad thing when it comes to your um vessels and caused by diabetes, obesity, various other comorbidities um, will lead to this. So what happens is your body is going to respond to the um, OxLDL and the inflammatory processes with monocytes. So they're going to invade the intima uh, where they become macrophages and engulf that OxLDL. 
the macrophages filled with these lipid particles become what are called foam cells. So you probably remember foam cells from uh, school when you were going through this. So they're going to accumulate in that intima and secrete pro-inflammatory cytokines. Um, and they're going to cause recruitment of more immune cells. So all these things are coming in. And while the immune cells are trying to help out, they're actually causing more problems than they're helping with because it's causing more inflammation and more problems that are going to all stick together and become what is the, the plaque buildup. So these immune cells bind to what are called adhesion molecules uh, on the endothelium. They secrete additional pro-inflammatory cytokines. Um, cytokines released from the immune cells cause smooth muscle migration from the media to the intima, and these activated smooth muscle cells secrete extracellular matrix components, um, and this is what causes the arteries to thicken and harden. And so you get plaque buildup, and um, along with hypertension, which uh, frequently goes along with this, if you have diabetes or obesity, um, it, you're also having a hardening of the um, arteries from that, and it's just gonna lead to a cascade where your risk is greatly increased for a cardiovascular event. And the other term that you may hear with that is when you get the, that buildup of those foam cells, you'll, they form that fatty streak um, on the uh, inside of those endothelial cells. And so, and then that can eventually get turned into this even higher buildup that uh, atheroma is another term that they'll talk about when you get that buildup. But that plaque is obviously the, the concern and why we need to control lipids early on before we get to that point. Um, and that's, the, the way that I always talk about it with my patients when I'm talking about, I had this conversation today at the clinic when uh, I patient's LDL is not all that high. And so she's like, well, my cholesterol is not high. I don't want to take another medicine. And so I got to, I kind of go through the spiel about the, you know, we've got, you're healthy now. We want to keep you that way. Right. 10 years, 20 years down the road. So this is, you know, I even talked about the CARDS trial with oh, her nice. in very, in very quick layman's terms, just mm -hmm. to show her that I wasn't making stuff up. And so she's like, oh, okay, fine. I'll do a tour of a 10. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I mean, you gotta, you gotta convince patients cause they see numbers and just like with hypertension and accomplished trials, we don't just treat the numbers. We use specific medications. Um, Though, you know, when all else fails, like there's a lot of people more than you would think who are really opposed to statins for whatever reason because of what they've heard and they're not going to be convinced. Uh, we would still rather them be on something to lower their LDL and they will get some benefit from that. But we want them to get the most possible benefit. Yeah. So I, I do think it's important to kind of like explain the why behind, yeah. it, especially with something like statins like Colesoma, who's good, it's got a lot of bad press in yeah. some areas. Um, she explaining where that information is coming from, I feel like really helps. Yeah. So, um, we won't spend too much time. We've already talked about like getting lipid levels, um, where the 2018 guidelines said in most cases that you don't have to be fasting any longer. That, yeah. Which is interesting. So you can have more than water and black coffee most yes. of the time. Or if the patient, like for instance, today it was three o'clock in the afternoon, she's obviously not fasting, mm -hmm. didn't know when her primary care point was going to be. So we went ahead and ordered a lipid lab while she's there just so we can have it marked for the year. We can wonder if that was all a conspiracy by LabCorp to get people to come in early so they don't have to work late. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It's interesting. Never going to fast into noon. So, you know, they got to come in at 8 a.m. Tell that to people who are doing intermittent fasting. Yeah, there you I go. I feel like they go past noon, but yeah. I don't know. I haven't looked too The worst thing it. that ever happened to LabCorp was intermittent fasting. Yep. Hey, I can come get my labs at 7 because I've been fasting for 12 hours. LabCorp had to work full days after that. Right. Somebody at LabCorp was like, are you freaking kidding me? 
These guys are bashing us. These guys are idiots. <laughs> that would never happen. No idea what they're talking about. So the other thing that the guidelines do a good job about is talking through lifestyle management. So talking about different healthy foods, um, you know, whether it's increasing your fruit and vegetable intake, um, ensuring the patient has lots of whole grains, um, eating things like fish, um, nuts, legumes, um, diff- like limiting red meat, simple sugars. So no, no sodas, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, I know. So, so delicious and so bad for you. It's terrible. I had one yesterday for the first time in a long time. A soda? It was so good. Yeah, it was just amazing. So good. I was like, oh, okay, spit it out. If I have any guilty pleasure, it is uh, soda. Yeah. So if, if there's any habit I'm going to have to kick later or even now, it's going to be soda. Not often, but like if I have a bad day, yeah. like we were closed last Monday on Labor Day. And so the next day it was like crazy. You better bet I got a soda when I was done. And my my, my uh, technicians know, they're like, you getting some soda and candy after work? I was like, yeah, it's yep. that kind of day. I earned it. Yeah, definitely earned it. Um, they also, the guidelines also mention exercise. So we've heard us talking about exercise uh, recommendations by like the American Diabetes Association. Uh, the dyslipidemia guidelines recommend moderate to vigorous aerobic activity, um, 40 minutes per workout, three to four workouts per week. For most healthy patients, yeah, um, to lower those levels naturally. Yeah, and if you want some more good information about our lifestyle and uh, diet recommendations, see our podcast from a couple episodes ago um, with Low Country Street Grocery. Uh, but yeah, other meds, legumes, nuts, fish. Um, the guidelines don't like mentioning specific diets, and that's probably good. Uh, but they do mention that the uh, Mediterranean diet is kind of a good one to maybe base your. Um, food groups around if you're looking for healthy things and um, trans fats they do not recommend those which have mostly been eliminated from um, US foods but um, I feel like I've seen them pop back up on some nutrition labels and stuff along with uh, drinks that used to be zero calorie they're now saying like five calories which I was aware that they did have actual calories in them and it just wasn't enough to be significant so they were allowed to put zero but I think something's changed because they say like like the you know uh, Coke Zero or something. Not, not a good example because I think it still says zero, but something like that. It says like five calories. I'm hmm. like, man, I'm getting ripped off here. They probably like were like, hey, you know how you guys lie on your package? You guys can't do that anymore. Yeah, that's probably what it is. Man, that's that's uh, well, it's like the sugar free drinks as well, yeah. where they have like like my my sugar free monster that I like so much. It still has like five or six grams. Oh yeah, of sugar. Right, it's I just guess because it's, it helps activate the caffeine and all that. It's below a certain threshold where they're allowed to yeah, to say, say no sugar. Right, it's like the only kind of unit of measure where you can have some of it and still be zero. I know. It still says zero. Just round down. Nope, nothing. <laughs> round down. Terrible. So treatment options. And before that, we oh, um we had we did we do we did a whole episode on smoking cessation, right? We had to have. Most likely. I'm sure we did. But always, you know, it's always good to mention smoking cessation. Hugely important for lipids. Hugely important for, because I mean, lipids are directly related to cardiovascular events and stroke, as is smoking. So, yeah, smoking cessation. Stop smoking, kids. That's all, that's all I'll say about that. Talk about some statins. Yeah, let's talk about some statins. How do those things work? <laughs> Funny, you should ask. <laughs> So statin therapy is kind of like the, you know, main focus of treating dyslipidemia. Um, Mechanistically, they are inhibiting the enzyme HMG-CoA reductase, and that is the the enzyme that's kind of like the rate-limiting step for cholesterol synthesis. So you block that, 
and shut down that production of what ends up being the um, LDL cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So there's obviously some potential side effects and stuff, which we'll talk about, but um, that is how it works. And um, it, they by far have the majority of data backing their use compared to other right. things. Risk benefit. Right. Which we'll talk about. But yeah, they happen to be pretty, be pretty effective when you can stop um, something right in the middle of when it's being created. Usually works pretty well. It's a good, it's a good call. It is interesting to me, I guess, uh, that some, you know, are just less potent, like not potent, but, you know, you have low intensity and high intensity, like why? But I guess it has to do with distribution and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. But uh, as a reminder, our options, uh, Restuvastatin and Atorvastatin are both the high intensities. There's also Pravastatin, Simvastatin, and um, the lesser used Lovastatin, uh, Pituvastatin, and Fluvastatin. Fluvastatin obviously being the absolute best one. <laughs> According to your rotation. According to that one guy, yeah. Love, love Fluvastatin. <laughs> it's the best. Yeah, I think you just like saying that. I don't Les know. Call. Do you know that's the brand name? Yeah. Les Call. Les Call XL and yeah. yeah. Weird. I don't know. I know we'll never see that. One guy loved it. Everyone got it. They um, they smell pretty good. They're little green pills. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. You know what else smells good? The potassium, the yellow potassium chloride tablets. You remember those? I do. Yeah. It's like candy, dude. Yeah, that is weird. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Some pills smell disgusting. <laughs> yes. And then, uh, yeah, the, I guess, I mean, if I had to take like, one, um, I'd really want that smells like candy. Clindamycin capsules smell like rotten uh, eggs. It's not my favorite. No. So... Some contraindications to uh, statin therapy, um, patients that have, um, you know, advanced or active liver disease is kind of not a good, not a good idea. Um, <laughs> One way to put it. Pregnancy, breastfeeding also. Um, yeah. If you want to go by like the uh, old pregnancy rating system, it was a category X. I think it's funny that... Um, <laughs> It's not been, it's not been like the system for what is it? Two or three years now, but like everybody still uses it. The categories. <laughs> so much more simple than it's explaining. So, it makes so paragraphs. much more sense. And I get that it's not like as clear cut as that, but, um, it's so much easier. Yeah. So, um, the more common adverse effects would be things like myalgias, myopathies, um, potentially some glucose intolerance, which we can touch on, mm-hmm. um, potentially even like cognitive impairment slightly. That's again, one of those things they're still looking at, yeah. still looking at. And kind I remember of being want. in complete denial about that after school. I was like, no statins are gold. There's no way they cause any problems. They might, but, um, yeah. so it's always good to keep an open mind. Um, some of them do have just some kind of like clinical pearls about them. Um, creatinine clearance less than 30. Then we need to use smaller or lower starting doses of particularly Lovastatin, Simva, and Resuva. Um, those are more um, yeah, renally cleared. And so we got to be careful with those. Um, and then with Patavastatin, we have to like lower doses, especially starting off when you have a creatinine clearance less than 60. So that one is the one you gotta be most careful with with the patient with uh, CKD. And then, um, from a, like an ethnicity standpoint, patients that are of Asian descent seem to have two times higher exposures to resuvastatin specifically. Mm-hmm. So usually with, with, we don't have to start at low doses for patients with statins. We can kind of just jump to higher doses if we need to, but it is kind of recommended that patients of Asian descent start at a five milligram resuvastatin dose yeah. and then titrate up from there kind of to make sure they tolerate it. Okay. Kind of like, but not really like starting with a lower dose family. Lodipine and um, and females. Yeah, mm-hmm. they get a bit of a better response. 
So, yeah. So I talked a little bit about the intensities, but um, as far as why they're called that intensity, um, people think it might be related to, uh, I don't know, potency and it's related to the myalgias and things like that, but not exactly. It just has to do with how much it's going to lower their LDL. Uh, so the high intensities is should lower their LDL by at least 50%, moderate intensity, 30 to 50, and the low intensity, which I just can't really think of much of a reason to ever use those unless um, somebody's just having um, significant issues with myalgias, which really you would want to just do something, um, hydrophilic would be less than 30%. I'm trying to think of, uh, it would probably be, I guess, like a drug, drug interaction type Could of be thing. a drug, drug interaction type of thing. Yeah, I got one. If you were on simvastatin and you're on, think of rapamilin I think the recommended dose is 10 milligrams. Right. So Which would intensity. be technically low intensity, though they're getting the benefit of a probably moderate, right. or, well, it has to be moderate intensity. So I guess that's kind of like low mm-hmm. intensity for those, for those peeps. Right. Yeah. Good point. Um, so as far as there's a, the guidelines themselves, there's a table that kind of lists all the different statins, um, in, in that category of high, moderate and low. And the table itself, it's kind of interesting because and I'm sure you've heard us talk about this before. Cause I think I'm almost positively mentioned it in another podcast, but some of the statins are bold and some of them are just regular font. And the ones that are bold are the ones that actually have outcome data associated mm-hmm. with them. So for instance, like a torvastatin 80 milligrams is bold. Mm-hmm. 40 milligrams actually is two, but there's only one study I think that had outcome data. Um, I, I think it was called the ideal trial. I don't know if I, I, I'm pretty sure that's, that's right. Good job. If that's what it is. But they, uh, cause I think I looked it up to see what the one was and I just happened to remember. I'm pretty sure it's the ideal trial. I hope I'm not wrong on that. <laughs> but, um, in the 40 milligrams, I do know this for a fact, the 40 milligrams was what it was switched to if they couldn't tolerate 80. So it wasn't even like the main right. goal of therapy. So all the data with that one, the outcome data is with the 80 milligrams. Same with like a Torva 10, and the, the 20 milligrams is still moderate intensity, but it's not bold mm-hmm. because the outcome data isn't with 20 milligrams, it's mm-hmm. with the 10 milligrams. Which you could probably assume, right? Like if they did 20 milligrams versus placebo, like they did with a 10, 100%. they would right, get it right. But they yeah. don't, they didn't do it because they didn't think they needed to waste and, the money. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's just one of those things. Like if you're ever looking at that, just to more so curb like any kind of confusion, that's mm-hmm. why some of them are bold. It doesn't mean you can't use a Torva 20 or right. anything like that. So yeah, just to clear that up in case you are confused when you see it. Yeah. Um, so, um, you want to talk about the search trial real quick? Yeah, let's mention that. So the search trial is important. It's from, um, almost 10 years ago, but it's the reason that we don't standardly recommend using, um, really high doses of simvastatin anymore. Uh, so it was simvastatin 80 versus 20. And I think we've mentioned it before on the podcast, but, um, Comparing those two did not result in any difference in major vascular events, but did result in more side effects. Um, so I like these trials when we can say, hey, um, you know, we can use a lower dose of something and cause less side effects, but it's still going to get the same benefit. So no difference in death from vascular causes or non-vascular causes between the groups. But myopathy was present in 53 uh, of the 80 milligram patients, but only two of the 20 milligram. And rhabdomyolysis was uh, present in seven of the 80 milligram patients and none of the 20 milligrams. So FDA recommends against initiation of or titration to the 80 milligram dose. And I think the recommendation is if somebody is stable on the 80 milligram grams um or has been for a year uh, you can leave them on that but there's not really a reason to 
increase anyone else up there. Yeah. I I feel like that's something that we've talked about multiple times, but I know I still see simvastatin 80 milligrams. Yeah. So, and personally, I mean, I'm, I'm always using a torvastatin or resuvastatin unless I, they, they can't tolerate those. And then I'm moving to something else and I get, I guess simvastatin might be a little cheaper. Um, but the other ones, are, I mean, a torvastatin isn't super, super expensive or anything. So. Yeah. It's gotta be, I yeah. haven't looked at my crest store is recently generic in the last few years, but, um, yeah. Not terrible. I feel like a tour is very affordable now. Yeah. I'd be have to look at like Walmart's list and things, but I feel like it's got to be down there. Yeah. Um, we'll touch on just a couple of drug drug interactions just to be aware of. So things like uh, with simvastatin is the one that I always think about with drug drug interactions, but um, specifically um, I just mentioned the 10 milligram dose. If you have a patient who is on verapamil or diltiazem, at the same time as simvastatin, uh, make sure you use a max dose of 10 milligrams of simvastatin. And basically, it's because simvastatin is a 3 4 substrate. And with those being inhibitors, you basically can quadruple your area under the curve yeah. of uh, your simvastatin uh, concentration. And so if you're giving verapamil, it's going to be a much higher dose that the patient's actually receiving. And, and so we don't want to use more than 10. Um, with amiodarone, amlodipine, and Renexa, we are thinking max of 20 milligrams simvastatin. And then with atorvastatin, um, the only one we want to like completely avoid with, um, or the, well, I should say the only one, one of the common drugs that you may still see is uh, like cyclosporin. We don't want to use that along with atorva. And then things like chlorithromycin, Itraconazole, ritonavir, some of those drugs we would only want to use like a max of 20 milligrams of Atorva. Right. Um, and as far as whether you should start the max dose or not, we've talked about the TNT trial before. Um, and we know that a lot of patients, more than I you know, had originally thought, I feel like I see it frequently, patients who have myopathies and issues, if they have that, then, you know, bump down. And I mean, I've heard the argument that... Um, if somebody, if you start at that higher dose and then somebody has problems then they're going to be, they're, they're going to want to stop it. Um, just, you know, set expectations when you're starting the medication that if you have any issues, we can lower it. And I think that's helpful, or we can swap to a hydrophilic statin like resuvastatin or pravastatin, um, and, you know, do whatever you have to, to keep them on it and, um, to just keep their LDL lower in some way, whether it's every other day dosing or three times a week dosing, you know, you've seen that too. So all those are options. Yeah. The there's, I saw one study that, uh, it was, it wasn't looking at outcome. It was just looking at like LDL lowering, mm-hmm. but they saw some LDL lowering with uh resuvastatin once a week. Nice. And they still got some yeah, LDL residual, you know, lowering. And you can usually hopefully work them up from there. Some people it's just, they're just like, you try to increase. I know people, a couple of people like that. You try to increase them. And it's like, oh, pain. Move them down to this five milligram resuvastatin every couple of days and they're fine. But yeah. yeah, it's interesting. So like you said too, like I've, I, me personally, like I always feel like it's way easier to start at the higher dose because that's what it's indicated anyway. If mm-hmm. the patient needs a high intensity, start them on the max dose because it's way easier to say, all right, let's cut your dose completely in half versus yeah. getting them stable. They feel like it's good and they're like, okay, now we're going to double it. Right. I feel like that just sits better with patients when you're cutting stuff off right. versus, you know, the trying to double doses. Right. So that's my personal preference is always to kind of go max and go from there. Yeah. That's Mike's personality. Go max, <laughs> go max or go home. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> um, so besides 
statins. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have our azetamib or zedia. Mm-hmm. So we have other things as well. So we got like, and I'll mention these just real briefly, like our fibrates and our niacin, um, things like that. The problem with those, not really any good outcome data. Yeah. So the big thing is, and the, the guidelines push this big time is they want to recommend drugs that have not just lowering the cholesterol, but actually have been shown that not only do they lower the cholesterol, but they also result in decreases in those cardiovascular events. Because mm-hmm. just like what like Cole mentioned earlier, the accomplished trial in hypertension, if we lower the blood pressure and the person has an MI, that doesn't necessarily uh, mean that we did a good job. Right. So we got to think mechanistically, like how it's actually lowering the the lipid levels instead of just getting a random number down lower. So the guidelines are specific about which agents they want you to use to get to those goal LDL levels. So zetamine is one that, uh, and, and it's working differently. It's actually in, in uh, inhibiting the absorption of cholesterol at the, what they call a brush border of the small intestine. So completely different mechanism of action. Um, somewhat similar adverse effects, though, as far as like the myalgias and things, especially um, if it's in combination with the statin. Mm-hmm. So that may just be from the statin. Right. Which um, it was studied, you know, yeah. a lot of times with the statin, too. Um, and then diarrhea, things like that. And then uh, there's been some case, like cases where they have like upper respiratory tract infections and like sinusitis and things like that. But from a, I haven't seen too much of that in real actual practice and then you know it's one of those was it from the drug or was the patient just happen to be sick during the study um but it is uh it was studied in combination with simvastatin no i'm not it was approved in the brand name vitorin as a combo but the study that got that that approved and kind of had our not approved but the study that was behind the outcome data with zenomib was called the improve it trial Mm mm-hmm and they had 18,000 patients enrolled in the study, and it was originally scheduled to go five years, I believe. Um, the problem was they didn't meet – it was trending in the right direction, but it wasn't meeting statistical significance. And so they let it go a couple more years. So at the seven-year mark, they reached statistical significance, and um, number needed to treat at seven years was 50. So the big kind of problem – with that one is what would have happened if you had studied that like versus a torvastatin by itself. Right. Um, or if you'd use one of the higher intensity statins, cause we don't have great outcome data with Simva. Right. We have a lot of our data with a Torva and Resuva. So, you know, they do include it cause there is some outcome data and we have some benefit, but we don't know exactly how right. great that is. So the big takeaways, it's only outcome data is in combination with a statin. And it was simvastatin that it was going up against. The guidelines, which we'll go through, and this was secondary prevention. This was people with recent ACS. Mm-hmm. So we'll go through it. Um, but they do still recommend um, adding azetamibe is pretty much your your first add-on option. But yeah, the data is not like just blow you away kind of data. <laughs> it sure doesn't. <laughs> okay. But yeah, some of the other options, um, there's fibrate derivatives like phenofibrate and gymfibrazil. Um a lot of times if you're using these, it's going to be somebody whose uh, triglycerides just for whatever reason are not adequately controlled with maximum statin therapy. Um, but uh, and generally, we try to avoid them, uh, increase myopathy risk, um, but not really any great outcome data that has panned out, though I've seen it used where somebody's on their maximally tolerated statin, their, L- their lipids are fine, but their trigs just 
blow up when um, they're not on the fan of fire for some reason. So I guess that's a interesting case to use it for. Um, we'll mention uh, PCSK9 inhibitors because um, those are also the the class that we have more outcome data with. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've talked about uh, like the under the brand name Prolulent and Repatha. Um, both of them do have outcome data. Um, and these are both injectables and PCSK9 is basically um, the enzyme that's responsible for that breakdown of the actual receptors that like bind to LDL. So if you can inhibit the breakdown and there's more of those receptors available, more LDL binds, so more LDL gets cleared from the blood, you know, from circulation. The problem with these is they are quite expensive. Yep. Um, they've come down a lot. But they're still not cheap. No. Um, far from cheap. And so the cost benefit of them is something that's still being debated and the guidelines kind of left it at at the moment. They probably aren't cost effective. Right. But they were going to kind of just monitor over the next few years and update it as they go. Um, but the prices have come down since the guidelines have been written. Um, but I haven't seen any great cost analysis that have been super, uh, you know, uh, clearly pointing us in the direction of using those. And it's so funny how they calculate those things and like quality life years and stuff and how they they try to put a dollar amount on what a quality life year is worth. Weird. Yeah. I'd be weird. It'd be interesting to be the the person who has to study that. Um, That being said, I do have a a fair amount of people on it. Um, So it's probably certain situations that the guidelines reference with maximally tolerated statin therapy and um, maybe even familial hypercholesterolemia, that sort of thing. So, but yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, Other, other things you'll see niacin, the data is just not really panned out. Like, you know, a lot of people had kind of hoped it would Um, bile acid sequestrants like Questran and Wellcall are some other options you'll see. And I mean, I would call those like ultra salvage therapy for if just the person's refusing other things or whatever, but not something you're going to recommend first, second or third line. Do you want to jump into these? uh, Yeah. You want to start with secondary prevention? Yeah. So looking at the, 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 basically the way to think about it is there's four treatment groups or four statin groups because we always start with statins if possible. So the first one being secondary prevention. So these are patients who have had, you know, clinical ASCVD. So they've had some sort of um, a major ASCVD event, so whether that's uh, ACS within the last 12 months, um, a history of MI, they've had an ischemic stroke, they've had peripheral arterial disease, um, something along those lines. They are, they've had an event and they obviously are at risk for having another event later on. So secondary prevention. Um, the other thing that, uh, the guidelines mentioned in this group is patients who are at high risk for having another one of those events. So not just the fact they're obviously at risk because they've had an event, but now the ones that are even higher risk because of other certain comorbidities. So things like patients that are 65 and over, um, patients that have had um, a cabbage or uh, P- undergone PCI, uh, patients that have diabetes, LDLs above 100, patients who have uncontrolled hypertension or current smokers, CKD, there's a whole list of different conditions that put them in like a high risk category, mm-hmm. which comes into play when you are looking at the treatment options. Right. So patients that are 
it, the way it breaks down is if you have clinical history of ASCVD, first things first, healthy lifestyle obviously is important. Um, and then they look at whether the patient's at very high risk or not. If they are not at very high risk, um, but they are less than 75 years old, automatic high intensity statin. Yeah. This is secondary prevention. So they've already had an event. Um, and then from, because the goal LDL with these patients is going to be less than 70, Mm -hmm. which is, we talked about in last year's episode, but a bit of an update from the previous recommendations, but more similar to the previous, previous recommendations. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And so the the LDL being less than 70 is the goal. So if a patient is, you know, either not at goal with the high intensity setting, or if they're not able to tolerate the high intensity, if they're not able to tolerate it, you can switch to moderate intensity and go from there. If they're not at goal, even though they're on maximally tolerated statin therapy, that's when you can consider adding azetamide. Mm-hmm. And then if you are up, not at high risk, but you are above the age of 75, they recommend, and this is the, the quality of the data backing these recommendations are lower yes. when you get here. But um, if the patient is um, greater than 75 years old, initiating either high intensity to moderate intensity is still reasonable, even though the patients are older. Mm-hmm. And then if they, um, you know, are already on a statin and they kind of go and they hit that threshold of 75 years old, you can consider continuing them on the statin. Right. The, the problem was a lot of our studies don't include patients over 75. Right. Most don't. And um, then there's the slight concern for cognitive impairment, which right. comes into play there. But we'll talk about one of those studies. Um, so that's the people who are not at very high risk. The group that are at very high risk. So they have one of those comorbidities that are going to make you think, hmm, we should probably be more aggressive with these people um, than high intensity statin. Um, boom regardless of age. So they just say high intensity statin or maximally tolerated statin. Uh, if they are on this and their LDL is still above 70, so it's not at that goal, we can add a zetamide. Um, and they also on that same note with a high level of evidence say if a PCSK9 is considered, you want to add a zetamide first before doing the PCSK9. And that's almost exclusively because of, um, cost benefit analysis. Um, but if they are on a clinically judged, maximally tolerated um, LDL lowering therapy, so they're on maximally tolerated statin, maybe on azetamibe, and their LDL is still above 70, and they are at very high risk, um, or if their non-HDL cholesterol is above 100, you can add the PCSK9. So again, it's not super strong evidence, and I think that's still um, a lot of cost uh, analysis, but you can add the PCSK9 in that situation as well. So secondary prevention is actually pretty straightforward. Yeah. And on their... Um, main algorithm from these 2018 guidelines, they don't reference any other lipid lowering therapy, no fibrates, um, no bile acid sequestrants, no niacin, nothing like that. They reference it throughout the guideline and other situations, but on their main algorithm, they don't mention those at all. Um, And then one thing just to kind of throw out there too, is if you look at like the ACE guidelines, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, they have a, they also have the less than 70, um, 
uh, goal of LDL, but they also have a, I think they call it extreme risk, right? Um, where they have another goal where you go less than 55. And that was based on some of like the PCSK9 outcome data. Mm-hmm. And in October, they are going to be releasing their new guidelines. Oh, nice. For, so it'd be interesting to see how they, mm-hmm. so what we, they do. So what you're saying is we're going to be doing another lipid podcast in about a month or so. <laughs> yeah. And I just kind of dawned on me about yeah. that. So <laughs> well, good. We'll see what they, we'll see how different they are. Well, we like doing guideline updates, I think are super interesting and important and timely. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that is, you know, super new stuff. And I say super new in the last five, seven years um, where they're seeing really low LDL. We always presumed it's safe, but they're in, in big trials are seeing super low LDLs and still seeing good outcomes with no increased adverse effects. So that's good. Yeah. So that's group one. So if yep. you have, if you have an event automatically, you go into group one. Yeah. If now we get into the three other groups where it's more primary prevention, right? Starting off with group two, which is severe hypercholesterolemia. So what they define that as an LDL of 190 or more. So if a patient has, you know, an LDL of 200, whatever, you know, they automatically get put into this group if they've never had an event. Right. Now, if they are in this group and they've had an event, they still go back to group one, so on and so forth. So this is like, they're like tiers. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the thing that was confusing for me when I first looked at it was I would see a 200, but like, well, why are we treating them as a type, you know, in the group one, if mm-hmm. they, it's like the the event itself is the first thing to look at. Then you look at their lipid level right? and then go from there. So lipid levels above uh, 190 or above patients. And this is patients aged 20 to 75 years old. Uh, it's the ones we'll kind of focus on um, maximally tolerated statin therapy. Mm-hmm. So they included younger patients in the study, uh, which was interesting. Right. So automatic, really high LDL, boom, high intensity statin. High level of evidence. And this came up because we had a, a 23-year-old uh, who, very unhealthy, came to the clinic and their LDL was high. And the, um, we had a discussion about this because the one of the nurse practitioners was like, oh, well, we don't start a statin until you know, patients, patients older, like, you know, 40, you know, 40 years old, something mm-hmm. like that. And, uh, so we went through the, the new guidelines cause they do include the younger patients now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and then patients who are in that group, um, the severe hypercholesterolemia, the goal LDL is going to be 100 or less for those patients. So, so more of a regular, uh, regular goal. Yeah. So less than 70 with First group, the high, the secondary prevention group, and then for this primary prevention group with a high LDL to begin with, their LDL level needs to be less than 100. If you don't reach that with the maximally tolerated statin, they say to add azetamide. Yeah. So it's another group where you can add that in there. They don't really spend too much time going through PCSK9 inhibitors because I don't believe PCSK9 has been studied too much in primary this group, prevention. Yeah. I think most of them have all been, as far as I know, they've been secondary prevention studies. And I think they, they talk about like familial hypercholesterolemia situations, yes. So, but I guess it's slightly separate from this. Yeah. Yeah. So the next group uh, would be diabetes. And um, so they've simplified it slightly from the um, previous recommendations and then complicated another portion, but it's, it's not too bad. Um, so adults 40 to 75 years old who have diabetes, they're getting a statin, every single one. Um, modern intensity statin at least um regardless of their 10-year ascvd risk so notice we didn't mention the 10-year ascvd risk with the first group because that's secondary prevention so um, they already have clinical ascvd so there's no reason to calculate what their their um, risk of having a first ascvd event is 
Um, if they have uh, multiple risk factors and have diabetes, it's reasonable to do a high intensity statin. So if you feel like, oh, man, this guy's really unhealthy, I think he's, you know, um, very high risk. It's reasonable to do a high intensity with uh, the goal to reduce LDL levels by 50%. Um, and in adults with uh, diabetes, 10 year ASCVD risk score being 20% or higher, uh, it may be maybe reasonable to add a zetamibe um, if you're not at the goal, which I think with diabetes, they're looking at less than 70 with them as well. And if you're wondering like kind of, cause they, ha they have risk factors for like the first group, but they do have specific diabetes risk factor and they call them risk enhancers yeah. in this group. So, you know, a patient that has had diabetes, especially type two long, greater than 10 years would be what they consider a risk enhanced and enhanced group, mm -hmm. um, or patients with type one, 20 years or more, um, patients that have albuminuria, uh, 30 micrograms or more, uh, EGFR of less than 60 patients that have a history of retinopathy or neuropathy, um, are all considered, um, those are all considered to be diabetes specific risk enhancers. And that would be, um, a way to kind of assume whether or not you needed to intensify the therapy or use it in younger patients as well. Right. So the patients like Cole said was 40 to 75 with diabetes, but if they have any of those risk enhancers, 20 to 39, you can go ahead and consider them for uh, a statin as well. If they have one of those risk factors. Right. Yep. So, um, as far as primary prevention goes, um, the ASCVD risk calculator is a pretty handy dandy little doohickey. Uh, we've talked about it before. Um, I, I think we did do a smoking cessation episode because we talked about this in that where it's good to, you know, you can click, yes, I'm smoking and this is your risk or no, I'm smoking and, um, your risk just decreased by this much. Um, so, you know, I'm sure it's not perfect science, but they, they've, you know, pooled a nice little um, cohort calculator thing here that you can use and um, to show patients what their um, ASCVD risk is to hopefully um, improve adherence and um, help them accept the therapy that you're trying to use that is probably going to be lifelong and it will also help you uh, guide therapy. So they um, there's the original ASCVD risk calculator from 2013. And then there's the risk estimator plus tool um, that they've come out with more recently, which includes more patient specific factors, like um, if they're on a statin or aspirin, um, what their LDL is and their uh, blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure as well. The aspirin one is kind of interesting because this came out before, before the new stuff, all yeah. those new aspirin studies came out. So I'm wondering if they're going to remove that as part of it. I wonder. Be interesting. Um, so as far as the last and final group, group four, which is like the true primary prevention group. Mm -hmm. um, so when it, the guidelines kind of talk about it again, like if right. the patient has an LDL of 190 or higher, they go into group two, diabetes group three. Um, and if they have an ASCVD group one um, or any ASCVD history of ASCVD group one. So they say if all those things are no, mm -hmm. then you get put into this last group and that's where it's completely based on your risk. Right. So this is where a little more clinical decision-making has to come into play. So really the main group that is talked about is the 40 to 75 year olds right. in this group. Um, so these 70, 40 to 75 year olds, their LDL is between 70 and 190, mm -hmm. um, and they do not have diabetes. And that's when we really need to look at their 10 year ASCVD risk. Right. Which again, those caveats remove them from the first three groups. 
So there's four risk categories now that they talk about. There's the low risk, which is a, a the ASCVD risk of less than 5%. There is the 5 to 7 point or less than 7.5%, which is, they consider borderline risk. And there is a greater 75, 7.5% to to less than 20% is intermediate risk and then 20% or higher high risk. So if the patient is low risk, you're talking lifestyle mm-hmm. changes. Um, if it is the borderline risk, you're talking about lifestyle plus looking to see if they have any sort of like risk enhancers, which we've already talked about the diabetes specific ones, but now they also include ASCVD risk enhancers. Mm-hmm. A lot of enhancers in this, mm-hmm. a lot of extra tables in the study out of these guidelines, but the ASCVD risk enhancers, they can include a family history of like premature ASCVD. Um, they could have persistently elevated LDL of 160 or more. Patients that have chronic kidney disease, metabolic syndrome, um, conditions that are specific to women like preeclampsia, uh, premature menopause, um, patients that have any kind of like inflammatory diseases, so like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, HIV, um, and then patients, um, they even mentioned ethnicity, which is South Asian ancestry, then uh, those patients would all be included. If any of those match up with your patient, that would be ASCVD risk enhancer. You know, I wonder what they consider premature. Like, what's the age cutoff? Like, let's just say it's 60. So that means that if you're like 59 and a half and you have a heart attack, then it's premature. And so you're your, your, you know, future generations are all going to be scarred by your premature ASCVD. But then if you're 60, it's not premature anymore. So they don't have to put that on their, you know. I think that's where the clinical decision making yeah. comes from. Because you're like, well, he was 59 and a half, but he also ate McDonald's <laughs> 24 hours a day. Right. It's like, well, you know, maybe. Smoked smoked since he was 13. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those, I think you have to take all that into consideration. Yeah. So that's the, the the borderline risk if a patient has it falls in that category, but also has those risk enhancers. That's where potentially considering moderate intensity, even though we don't have a ton of data there. But then intermediate risk is where that's going to be more uh, favoring the use of uh, moderate intensity statin, um, especially if they have the risk factors um, or the risk enhancers. Excuse me. And then a high risk where you have an ASCVD above 20, that's where you automatically are going statin therapy. Right. Probably even high intensity. Probably. Yeah. So that means if they're a high risk group, then their risk of having a ASCVD event over the next 10 years is 20%. So there's a one in five chance that at some point in the next 10 years they're having one. So yeah, personally, because, well, they say initiate statin to reduce LDL greater than 50%, which would High high intensity, right? So yeah, that's where I would go. So that's, and that there's really, really nice tables and figures that are listed in the guidelines. So I would encourage you to kind of look at those mm-hmm. because uh, if you're just trying to memorize that off of what we just said, it's not right. going to happen. Right. So definitely take a look at those tables because they're, they're laid out really kind of easy to follow once you have an idea of what they're showing. Right. Um, so yeah, just before we end here, I think we've mentioned it briefly on a different podcast, but there is a, a new drug floating around, um, Nexlatol, um, bimbadoic acid yes. tablets, uh, which is an adenosine triphosphate citrate lyase inhibitor. Um, and it can be used, um, in addition to statin therapy, uh, for people with familial hypercholesterolemia, or if they have ASCVD and they're requiring some additional lipid lowering, this is, uh, approved as of this year. Yes. 
problem with this though is we do know that it lowers LDL. So it'll be interesting to see, especially with the new ACE guidelines coming out, if they put this in their guidelines at all. But we don't have any outcome data right. with this yet. So they're, the way. they're doing um, the clear outcomes, which is the, the clear studies were the ones that got it approved showing the LDL lowering. But the clear outcomes are going to be the actual cardiovascular events. And uh, that one is scheduled to end in 2022 and then be presented in 2023. So we're still a ways away from knowing whether or not this is actually going to be useful or not. And one little thing about it, you can't use simvastatin greater than 20 milligrams with it, and you can't use pravastatin greater than 40 milligrams with it. So yet another cholesterol drug that has interactions with other cholesterol drugs. It's not convenient. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, go ahead. I was going to say, let's make sure we mention the reduce it trial. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was going to say the reduce it trial too, which is a pretty cool little trial that came out a couple years ago, which I think we've also briefly mentioned, but this is with, um, Vesepa, um, the, um, icosapent ethyl drug. So it's, um, fish oil, but what we like to say, it's the um, best fish oil because it's the only one that has good outcome data now. Um, so with patients um, who had ASCVD uh, or diabetes plus an additional risk factor who had been on statin therapy, um, they also had to have elevated triglyceride levels in the reduce it trial. So 135 to 500. Um, it did uh, give pretty good outcome. So there was a reduction in cardiovascular events. There was a composite of like your standard cardiovascular composite of um, death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, unstable angina, and um, revascularization uh, with a 0.9% absolute reduction in cardiovascular death at five years. And the uh, icosapent ethyl is specifically is a, you mentioned it being a a good, really good uh, form of fish oil. Mm -hmm. to, it's it's like a highly purified, and what they say, they call it a stable. It's an EPA, but it's um, an ethyl ester, and it's just a highly purified version of it. So mm -hmm. it's not the same as like the um, Lavaza. Mega-3s and, and stuff. Yeah. yeah. This one's very specifically the brand name Vesipa is the brand name that has that particular version of it. Right. So you can't take this data and extrapolate it onto your... Um, your omega threes, right? Because a lot of those studies have not panned out. Not panned well. out. So this was the first quote fish oil study that that did pan out. So the most recent kind of update, because we've talked about the reduced trial before, but the most recent update is a study called Evaporate, um, and this is it was kind of designed to look mechanistically at the cardiovascular event reduction. Um, and so what they were doing is they were comparing it to placebo again, um, and they were looking at how well or not well it slowed the progression of different types of plaque. Mm -hmm. um, kind of strange. Yeah. And they actually go through and, and list, because the placebo that they were using was mineral oil placebo, again, to make it look the, like the, the capsule, yeah, the gel capsules or whatever. Um, all the different types of plaque uh, were decreased when you use the vesipa versus the mineral oil, except the dense calcium. Um, and then, so they looked at uh, like dense calcium. They looked at fibro fatty. They looked at fibrous. They looked at non calcified total plaque, and uh, you know the, this is the, the the question that some of the people are asking, there, there's some kind of speculation about the data itself because it looks how quickly they saw the plaque almost like build up in the placebo group 
Uh, we do know that potentially mineral oil could cause a problem with LDL, like almost like increasing LDL. And that's what they use as a placebo, which they also did in the reduce it trial right. and others. So one was, of the, yeah, that's so interesting. One of the, I don't you know whether that's on purpose or not. Like can they not make like colored water look like it? You know, like why does it have to be something that ha- that could increase LDL? I don't know. Or they did it on purpose. <laughs> exactly. So the, some of the, um, kind of like rebuttals to the study that have come out. And, uh, it's kind of funny cause Medscape even has like pictures of like the Twitter battles. I know. And that's so hilarious. That He's like literally like professed like department chairs and are like battling it on Twitter, on Twitter over crazy. Uh, it's, I think it's hilarious, yeah. but they're battling it over Twitter, over the statistics and all this. And one guy even wrote like this statisticians are getting it up on me. Mm. <laughs> it's pretty funny. But, um, basically what they were talking about was the, the, placebo groups seem to be going up at a rate that was faster than they would anticipate and ended up saying, well, if, if, if we're actually getting higher, like, like plaque buildup that quickly, um, how in the world, like, does it, everyone not have cardiovascular disease? Like why it, it basically, the quote is, why isn't everyone dead from coronary disease then? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that was kind of, you know, the issue. And then there's some other, you know, kind of back and forth where they talked about like the way that they collected it. Um, the authors of the study said that most of the way that they kind of evaluate the atherosclerotic progression is before was using something called uh, intravascular ultrasound. Um, whereas the evaporate trial was kind of like the first study that used, um, the CT angiography based analysis. So it's a different measuring system, different volumes and all this different stuff. So they were saying, oh, it's because you're not used to using this. And that's, you know, how they got to these these numbers and this, that, and the other. So um, there's kind of some back and forth as to whether that's that's actually effective. And then the one of the events is, are you are we actually seeing the results of the Vesipa producing like the cardiovascular risk, or are we just seeing the risk from the mineral oil causing those patients to go up? So it's making it look like the yeah. is better than not. I don't know. I'd be curious to see how like this all ends up playing the more data that comes out and stuff. But I would say the simple, simple fix is just stop using mineral oil. And they, so what they, one of the, the authors actually mentioned this and he said that, uh, there was a study, um, they showed uh, there's another study called the uh, garlic five that I, I I've never read that. So I'm not sure what they were actually saying. I assume something to do with garlic, but, um, <laughs> what has nothing to do with garlic, the studying uh, cinnamon, but they were, and that'd be funny, but, um, they showed similar rate of plaque progression, um, between the, uh, uh, cellulose based placebo that the other study used in garlic five versus their mineral oil placebo that they used. Mm. And they were similar plaque progression. He's it's, they said it's not, uh, the mineral oil. The mineral oil. But that's, you know, he's also the lead investigator. So Maybe they just found some unhealthy patients in Maybe. the placebo group that eat a lot of McDonald's. Yeah. You know? So, but yeah, there was this whole debate on like whether the study could have been, or whether the data had been unblinded and all yeah. this different stuff. So a lot of stuff. So keep uh, kind of in here out for that. And I'm sure it'll, we'll get more information as time goes on. But yeah. the time kind of, being, we we like Vicepa in general. But yeah. and it's not like the data was like... Uh, 
you know, I mean, what, how clinically significant was it? They were questioning that as well. It's not like they're looking at cardiovascular death. They're just looking right. at plaque buildup. So, and also too, it's, it's not like it's causing harm. So right. it, since it is maybe beneficial, right. I would say go ahead and yeah, give sure. it a shot. I say so. Especially if you had statin therapy and your triglycerides were still up, mm-hmm. go for it. Yeah. But yeah. Anything else with this stuff? That's all I got, man. I we've been going for like an hour. We have, and we will, uh, semi do it again when those new guidelines come out okay talk about dyslipidemia in two weeks (laughs) see you guys soon guys are gonna be thrilled but uh yeah we'll have to figure out how we're gonna spin that (laughs) um but thank you all so much for listening i hope that was somewhat beneficial as a refresher but um if you have questions for either of us make sure you send us an email you can reach out out to us on any of the social media platforms um if uh, you want to text us directly, text 415-943-6116. Um, and then we'd love to hear your feedback, get ideas for the show, um, topics, things like that. We'd love to hear it. Definitely appreciate all the support we've been getting on Patreon. I uh, hope you guys are liking the lectures and the slide sets and all that. But uh, I'm, I'm really appreciating you guys that are signing up for that. Um, that helps us out a lot. And uh, we will try to keep putting out content on there as well. But um, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you next time.